Here we are at the ending of the third full day and night of uh, practice. Checking how we are. Sometimes we get fooled by the syntax, the grammar of our language. Feels like we're moving through life, making our way through the retreat. But actually, in a way, from a dharmic perspective, from the perspective of our direct contact with our life. Our life is moving through this awareness. So now the Friday night, ending of the third full day is is arising. This perception. It's a memory of what it was like when we began the Tuesday night, that memory arises in, the, in this present moment and subsides. Whether we'll have a blazing insight tomorrow, or whether it will just be a tough day. It's a speculation about the future. a reflection that we did uh, every day in the monastery in our monastic training our western teacher Ajahn Sumedho used to like uh, saying frequently yesterday is a memory tomorrow is the unknown and now is the knowing we can know a memory It arises and ceases. Speculation about what might happen. We know the future as that speculation arising and ceasing in this ever-present now. Now is the knowing. I encourage us at this uh, point in the retreat, right in the heart of the retreat, I encourage us to take advantage of this precious time. It's very easy now for the heart to skip ahead, the next birth, to what we're going to do with our insights. Or if we didn't have any, to skip ahead and think, oh, I need a longer retreat. Or we think, you know, I just, I'm not really a Buddhist, actually. <laughs> you know. but to take birth. And if that's happening, we have the opportunity using the structure. Yes, it's a artificial in a sense. It's created. But this structure of silence, of the sitting and the walking, is a limitation that we consciously surrender to 
because it helps us, it reveals to us our tendencies. This is the secret. The secret of religion, the secret of yoga, the secret of contemplate, which gets forgotten in the modern world. In the modern world, religion is, well, what do you believe? You know, Buddhists get stuck on that one. <laughs> what, what, what? what do you believe? Whereas religio means to bind. It's a certain kind of religere, bind back what's been split, like to remember. It's a binding. Yoga has the same meaning, to yoke. Contemplate has within it that same secret, the temple within contemplate. In the ancient days, the literally marked on the land was the template, the sacred ground. And the seeker, you enter the temple, walk into the temple, maybe with inspiration. <sighs> I'm in the sacred ground. Thousands of men and women, seekers of the past, done this and I'm in that current now. Waiting for the insights. Then as we wait in the temple, you know, as the sun comes up, starts to get a bit hot. Maybe we get a bit bored. Or maybe we get cold and we sort of get restless. But if we've made a commitment to that structure, commitment to staying there, we have the opportunity to see the welling up of excitement that turns into discouragement, interest that turns into even aversion by staying with that limitation opportunity for the revelation of the true changing nature of conditions to happen. Religious practices are meant to be like that, practices that one uses, that are limitations. It seems like it's a paradox. It's the paradox of religion, of yoga, of structure. It's a limitation, like sitting is a limitation of form. There's nothing inherently sacred about this form. But if we use the sitting process, we can then, it can be something that can free us from all sorts of assumptions about ourselves. We can think, I'm happy, I'm a happy person. Then we sit there and notice it shifts and changes and we become, a, I'm a dull person. <laughs> and then we, I'm out of here. This is just, this is, this is not, it's not helping me. It's not helping me, and I've made a decision. I'm getting high. And so then we open our eyes, take a step to leave, and then we're electrically awake. I'm, I'm an electrically awake person. The limitation helps us see all those changes. When we forget that, then we just start grasping at the structure. That's when religion, that's the bane of religion. We grasp at the structure, at the terms, at the tools. Grasp at sitting. I sit. (laughs) She doesn't sit. Not a wise person. I sit. She sits, but she's not sitting correctly. (laughs) You notice she's watching her breathing at her nostrils? Narrow up there, you get, you get concentrated, but you know, it's in the belly. 
And someone else says, you know, look at Kitty Sorrow, he's sitting, but he's down there in the low chakras. It's all right for him, but you know, if you want to go up, you got to go up. <laughs> all these views and opinions, and you forget the whole point of it. The grace, the beauty, the extraordinary gift of the Buddha. He offered all sorts of techniques and structures, but he made it very clear they were just that, tools. That can help us, that can help liberate us, or they can, you can take up a holy book, this is the teaching, and it is, but you can take a book and club somebody with it. A lot of religious teachings are used to club people with. Or teachings can be used to illuminate and liberate us. The famous simile of the Buddha is, he said, all these teachings I'm giving you are like a raft. And you're beside a river and you're on a dangerous bank. It's a bit dangerous. There's a flowing river. Strong current, but there's a safe shore. And you use twigs and leaves and branches from what's available with a raft and you make your way through the currents to the safe place. But when he was talking like this to his monks and nuns and disciples, he said, now, and, and do you just, after that, go around forever with a raft on your head? You could be burdensome, but you could also put the raft down so it's available for others. You realize it was something, it's not the point in and of itself, is the raft. The point's arriving home. Or like a map that helps us navigate our way through the territory home. We can honor the map, be grateful for the map, but if we just always only bow to the map and never use the map to locate ourselves and travel home, we've misunderstood the point. So we've been offering some of these tools and they're tools and and there's all array of them and we can explore and experiment and find some, cultivate others. But remember, ultimately, the, the tool is to help us see more clearly, help free ourselves from suffering. Sometimes when the Buddha was asked what he taught, he would simplify it. Say, I teach two things. I teach suffering and the ending of suffering. Sometimes uh, people criticize the Buddhists. They're so grim. They're always going on about suffering. We got good news in Buddhism too. Suffering and the ending of suffering. Now, 
Now, these first uh, few days, we haven't been emphasizing the suffering yet. But in, in surrendering to the temple, entering the temple, the sacred ground, that's what this place is about. A place dedicated to helping us see ourselves in the world. <laughs> and in being very simple, we, we can notice a lot of things that aren't easy to be with. But the first uh, principle we've been doing is, is cultivating primary relationship, simplicity. We can uh, think, wouldn't it be nice to be at peace with all beings? That's a lovely thought, to be at peace. But in coming here, we're learning how to actually be in contact with and have a relationship with the primary elements, like our embodiment body. We've been practicing, you know, sitting and walking, standing, lying down, eating, encouraging ourselves to be, to be simple. It's a tool, teaching of mindfulness and a teaching of uh, cultivating uh, a certain measure, certain measure of calm. And some of us might be thinking, oh, well, it's not working. Maybe some are calm and we've been in a group and somebody else is really calm and we don't feel calm. But I encourage us to have a long, have a long view. If for the rest of our life, we can just little by little, in little ways, Learn how to be at ease, even a little more in the simplicity of standing. The simplicity of sitting, learning to, in little ways, appreciate being present, to breathe in and breathe out. To appreciate the simplicity of awareness, that simple joy of of noticing the light, noticing the dark, noticing the movement, noticing the stillness. Little by little by little in a lifetime, that's a great gift. This, this first uh, principle that we've been working with in meditation is called samatha. It's called calming, just even in, in little ways. If we, if we get more of it, that's fine. But in, in little ways, the Buddha taught that having some skill at cultivating a pleasing, abiding here and now is useful. Doesn't exploit the planet. Doesn't harm anyone else. <coughs> Learning how to enjoy simple things. First blessing. Second blessing is it allows us, as has been mentioned in Tanisha's talks and some of uh, Sharda's talks, it allows us to be present for our life in learning to be, to limit ourselves. And it's a limitation. It's a religare. It's a, a bond, a conscious surrendering and bonding yourself, like just to be with walking or sitting or eating. By training ourselves to 
connect our awareness to that activity, it allows our life to become conscious. So we become more alert, vigilant for our life. The third and most profound uh, blessing, and this is what I want to talk about uh, tonight, is that this, this pleasing abiding then can be turned to inquire and liberate us. Liberate us from false assumptions, from wrong views, from suffering. When we don't understand this principle, it's, uh, this happened to me, so I'm not just wagging my finger at anybody. When we get a taste of calm, it's so nice, and it's not bad to get attached to it. But my life was so externally focused that when I got a little bit, a taste of calm, I just wanted it to be, continue being that way. So I used to get depressed after every retreat. Because naturally the conditions help be more stable and serene, and that's skillful. It's skillful to taste that. But then what happens when we take that and claim it? We take birth in that. The Buddha actually called upadana. We grasp it. That, even, that means we lean on it. We get supported by it. Some even translate it as we climb onto that condition. Then when there's talking and more pain or something like that, we feel like we've lost it. Now, it's, it's skillful to have some calm. But remember, we've been talking and there were some questions about what is the relationship between calm and insight. And some people, and we use the term samatha, which is the Buddhist word for calm, and vipassana, the word, one of the words the Buddha used for insight. Pasana means to see. Vi, pasana means to see into. As I was saying in one of the discussions, this can be very confusing. It can make it sound like two really separate things. But these are two uh, dimensions of our practice that work together. And someone asked in their question, what well, does it mean what are we doing here? Are we doing Vipassana? We're doing Samatha. We've been doing both. And even in, in one sitting, in one posture, there, there can be tendencies to both. When we're really agitated and mainly using our meditations just to stabilize, And the mind's going all over the place and we're learning just to come back to this anchoring, this centering of the feet touching the earth. The body on the cushion. The swelling and the subsiding. And we're feeling the relative stability of that. We're feeling the reversal of having our energy sprayed around so much. We're feeling the reversal of having things gather again. That's primarily a a calming practice.
But then when we get frustrated, we might feel like we don't have it. Then we can also inquire, what's going on here? Or even when we are calm, or even if we're in an ordinary state, we can also shift, shift our perspective just ever so slightly. So it's not like we're going to another ballpark. As we're sitting here breathing, we can also notice that the breathing is becoming otherwise in every instant. The language says in-breath. It sounds like a thing. But actually, as we come into contact with this so-called thing, the in-breath, we realize it's swelling, shifting, pulsing, ceasing, becoming the out-breath, just changing, flickering, subsiding. Ajahn Chah encouraged us to cultivate some calm, but if we're not careful, we just keep wanting more calm, more calm, more calm, and that's how my practice started. I would get calm in that smooth humming, and sometimes a light would appear, and that delicious peacefulness, and if a light appeared, I thought, well, enlightenment, light, I can just (laughs) blow this thing out. And I'd squeeze that calm and go, calmer, calmer, calmer. I want to get calmer because I still was imagining I was getting somewhere. Then I had to declare war on ticking clocks and people that disturbed me and things that got in my way. I didn't have right understanding. That there were some calm and some skills, not a bad thing, some skill. But the image that reminds me of what I was doing was I grew up on Lake Chickamauga, in Tennessee, and in a summer evening when the lake gets calm and it's smooth and gorgeous and delicious. You can almost whisper on one side and the sound travels. Yes. And then you hear a (laughs) and the motorboats start coming in and destroying. But that's the nature of that kind of calm. When the wind blows, when the motorboats come, the calm of tranquility is fragile. It's impermanent. It's skillful. By all means, little by little in our life, we just get a little more composed. The Buddha, on the night of his enlightenment, got calm. He realized that this is a skillful feeling. He saw that if he got attached to it, yes, he would suffer. But he used that skillful feeling to refresh his body, clear the mind, and then he turned, turned that mind. Slight adjustment to see the nature of conditions. What's called this characteristic of existence. 
And this seeing change, being aware of ah nicha. Nicha means permanent. Ah nicha means not permanent. It's not what we think it is. It's not a question of convincing ourselves of something. It's allowing our, our assumptions about life to be dispelled. We make all sorts of assumptions about solidity and things that are really me and mine. And this living, sustained contact with the changing nature is very, very transformative, powerful. This teaching was was, uh, given to me the first time I met. uh, It didn't come in the form I thought it would, but the first time I met the great master, Ajahn Chah, I um, was a student at Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. And I was uh, writing a thesis on art, science, and mysticism in the works of Aldous Huxley, wanting to kind of figure out the universe. And then I was going to go back and be a doctor when I got back here to the States. And at 24, though, I was just so weary because my life had been about winning, winning wrestling tournaments. I know I don't look like much of a specimen nowadays, but... You're looking at five-time Mid-South champion, <laughs> National Prep Invitational champion. But my body's conked out since then, but I was striving to win and then be good at academics, thinking I could get to success and then I'd be, get there. And when I was at uh, Oxford, I just started feeling so weary because I was so into winning and that external affirmation that intuitively I realized there was something inside that was being forgotten. So I used to like just sitting quietly in churches. I couldn't stand the sermons, but I just, I liked being quiet. I knew there was something that needed to be listened to. Then I actually did a a meditation retreat, a 10-day retreat. This is only a five-day retreat. <laughs> a 10-day retreat. And the first three days were just hell. My mind's all over the place. And then I, I, I was attaching to my nose like a snapping turtle, <laughs> being with the breathing, being with the breathing. The teacher couldn't speak much English. He could just say, observe. But I, was, I snapped onto that. But then by, by day three or four, in between the meditations, I was standing outside. And here's somebody that's interested in championships and awards and big moments. And I was in front of a bush. And in where I grew up, bush league is kind of, you know, like not that spectacular. It's just like a bush. Uh, let's get to the next thing. But the, the, I noticed the dew drops and the leaves and I realized a, such a different experience for me to be just calm, present. The beauty, and I sensed the beauty came from within that could appreciate the beauty of just that. And that taste. 
grasp that taste. And, uh, and on that retreat, there was, uh, after the retreat, someone was visiting that needed a place to stay in Oxford. And the manager said, I was a student, so this person stayed with me. His picture, the guy's disappeared now, but his picture is down there with Jack Cornfield, one of the founders of this place. It was a guy named Doug Burns. He was living in Thailand and traveling through Oxford with a philosophy paper. He stayed with me and he told all different sorts of stories about his adventures, trekking in the Arctic and having dining with the king and queen of Thailand. And, but one of his uh, hobbies, specialties, was investigating meditation monasteries in Thailand, studying the effects of meditation on people. And he was a confident guy. But when he talked about one special place, one special teacher, he talked about Ajahn Chah with such reverence, said that there were a few Westerners with him, and he said, this, this man is enlightened. He felt he was. And I just thought, well, I've got to go. So within weeks, I had a leave of absence, and, and so I, I met this Ajahn Chah went to Thailand and, and this man, Doug Burns, whose uh, picture is in that little hut around gratitude uh, down there on the lane. This was back in 1976. He took me up to the northeast to meet Ajahn Chah. And I was hoping, because my experience of meditation, that little bits of peace and that maybe this master would Maybe I'd have to do a bit of work, but it'd be nice to be tapped. <laughs> and have some blinding light, maybe some tears. But, <laughs> but then, um, so he took me up and he introduced me. Walked into the monastery, got to his hut. It was their own stilts and... The hut was up above and stilts were below, little oily rags and so that ants wouldn't climb up into the huts. Or sometimes there's a little moat, tiny little moat of water around the hut so that the insects wouldn't come in. And we, we, uh, Ajahn Chah received guests below. And so at some point, there were a few people there, at some point uh, Ajahn Chah acknowledged us and asked me why I had come, and, and Doug translated. So I said something about, I don't know, enlightenment or wanting to be wiser. And you know how it is. I, I had enthusiasm, but it sort of petered out a bit. I didn't really know what I was talking about. But then when he asked me, uh, well, do you know how to meditate? I felt on firmer ground. Because I'd done a 10-day retreat. And a half. I'd actually done a half a retreat too. So 10-day retreat and a half. And uh, even though I had some trouble those first four days, I thought I was actually quite good. I'd been taught a sweeping technique around the body. And, uh, and I thought maybe my wrestling training had come in handy. Because I'm, used, I'm used to the body and I was getting into the sensations. And you know, normally you would just sweep and I found I could sweep simultaneously down both sides of the body. 
And um, I pride myself on being sort of humble. <laughs> but I was proud that I could do that. And so when he asked me about the meditation, I kind of I perked up because I was a bit shaky about the enlightenment bit. But then I was talking about my meditation and hoping he, well, I was sure he could see that I was a pretty good meditator and had potential. <laughs> and partway through my explanation, he gets off his wicker chair and gets on the floor like a dog and starts sniffing around all over the place <laughs> in very comical ways sniffing all over the place and saying some things in Thai and everybody's laughing. <laughs> and my, I'm very intuitive. I'm, <laughs> no, I am, I'm Piscean. And so my deep intuitive Piscean nature sensed that he wasn't impressed. <laughs> <laughs> With my meditation. So I'm waiting for this translation and saying, Doug, Doug, you know, Ajahn Chah finally comes up for air. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so uh, Doug said, you know, he's saying, you don't need to sniff all over the place. He said, he said, and then Ajahn Chah smiles at me. And, and Ajahn Chah pointed at his nose. And Doug says, he says, be with your breathing. And he said, if you understand one thing, you'll understand everything. If you understand one thing, you understand everything. He said, why don't you learn how to be a monk? Let Sumaita teach you how to be a monk. That was a senior Western disciple at the time, Ajahn Sumaita. He said, let Sumaita teach you how to be a monk. And he was smiling, and even though he'd made fun, he, he did it in a way that it touched my heart. And at the time, I didn't really understand. But he was pointing at my, again, attachment to the technique. I've got, I know what to do now. Techniques are useful, but remember, we use them. And yes, the techniques are helpful to get some, some little presence and stability, but also it's important to use them to see the nature, the nature of things in breathing, being in and out. Can we notice it's becoming otherwise every instant? The so-called breath is actually shifting, 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 changing, 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 changing. If you understand one thing, do you understand everything? Light, the day, the dusk, the wind, the calm, the forms. Sound is a form, a subtle form. Kitty sorrows, Friday night, third night, Dharma talk. It's interesting, or oh my gosh, there it is again. How long is he going to go? He's rolling now, I don't know. <laughs> it can get concrete, but when we actually go close to the Dharma talk, 
full of holes. As Charlotte was saying last night, full of holes, it's there and it's gone. All sorts of gaps. Because the nature of the talk is anicca. Feelings, being pleased, displeased. The states where we can't take another minute. I can't take another minute. I can't take another minute. Get close, we'll see it shifting, shimmering, changing. When we really look into this, and our meditation too, with a slight adjustment, right still with the breathing, can take us all the way home, just being with that ever-changing nature, ever-changing nature. Actually, all forms, inside, outside, all feelings, all thoughts and perceptions, all impulses, moods, moments of consciousness, of seeing. Right now we're seeing and feeling. Hearing. Thinking. It's a cascade. The actuality of this moment is cascade, cascading. Moments mixed with other moments. All the profound insights of, of the Dhamma come out of this simple recognition of anicca, the change. We try to figure it all out. Sometimes it's too much. Then we need to just steady come back to the samatha, the calming, simplicity, feet touching the earth, or breathing in, breathing out, and then again remind ourselves as we're with an in-breath and an out-breath, steady ourselves, and then we let it reveal to us the ever-changing nature. What's changing is dukkha. If something's changing, then it's not certain. It's not reliable. Dukkha means, it's sometimes translated as suffering, but it also means dukkha, ka from akasha, perfect space, do apart from the perfect. It's not perfect. It's not able to satisfy us. That's not a put-down. It's the nature of conditions. But when we get the calm feeling, it, yes, finally. Oh, God, day three. Oh, I can see it in the mom's scrapbook now. When Kitty Sorrow broke through. <laughs> the first arahant and enlightened being from Lake Chickamauga. (laughs) But the nature, like that calm lake, its nature is to become otherwise. The success, when I won that national championship, I'd been working for years. I was doing, at the end, 500 push-ups a day walking on my hands for 50 to 100 yards, climbing ropes, running. I was working. And it's good. Because I'd seen when I was eight years old the picture of a national champion on the wall of our high school gym, and I thought, I want to be that. It wasn't bad to work. It was great. I developed all kinds of good qualities. But when my hand was held up, and I had the victory and the pictures were taken and there were the cheers up in Lehigh, Pennsylvania. 
ecstatic, wonderful. How long does your hand stay up there? (laughs) And if you have a mom like mine and she's got the scrapbooks, you can open up the scrapbooks, there it is. But even minutes after that, when the group photos were taken of the champions, I was already scanning who's coming back next year. Who will I have to fight next year? It's the nature of success is anicca and dukkha. It's not able to satisfy. It's, it's because it's changing. It's not ours. We call it my victory. We call it my body. When we get praised or have those lovely, beautiful moments of being appreciated, there's an ancient tendency in us that's not seeing clearly that It's not evil that just says yes and leans on it. That's called birth. We take it to be me. It's birth on praise, on pleasure, on calm, on success. Then when it shifts, there's a sense of being dislocated. It's like if we lean on one of the cars down there in the parking lot because it's tired and might as well get supported, lean. If they drive off, we fall down. You lean on a wall and it collapses, you fall. If we lean on praise, pleasure, this is subtle leaning, but that's called birth. So when the heart is grasping through not really understanding the nature of conditions, by th- that causes all our suffering. The root of endless birth and death, the Buddha taught, is just this tendency to take conditions, conditions, circumstances, feelings, to take them to be me and mine. And then because of the changing nature, we lose it and we grasp again, we lose it and we grasp again. And that's the endless wandering. Ajahn Chah put it like this. He said, if you're looking for certainty in that which is not certain, you're bound to suffer. The nature of the conditioned world is uncertain. When we start to see that change, there's the possibility of dispassion coming. We realize that we're grasping at air so that a weariness, a disenchantment is useful. It's not that we put down conditions. There's nothing wrong with conditions. But when we're asking a condition, a pleasure, a calm, another person to make me happy, to let me then arrive. We end up choking things, choking each other, squeezing life and being frustrated. That's called wrong view, wrong seeing, wrong understanding. The Buddha likened it to diligently cooking sand, (laughs) looking forward to a savory meal, a tasty meal. You don't get a tasty meal by cooking sand. 
when we start to see in here and now, understand one thing, you'll understand everything. This in and out, in and out, changing. Then naturally the heart starts to let be, let go. It's the great reversal. We realize we've been looking in the wrong place, trying to grasp and own and pin down things as we start to honor life and let it reveal itself, let be, let go. Then we can start to touch into peace. The peace of our true nature that we've forgotten when we're so busy chasing, chasing it out there. Panyuttarasabedama, the Buddha said, wisdom, this clear seeing. So we're using these structures of mindfulness to, the, to develop a little bit of presence and capacity to be aware. When that awareness touches a condition and recognizes this changing nature, panyuttarasabedama, panya means wisdom, yutara overcomes sabedama. Wisdom surmounts all conditions. Vimutti sarasabedama, what I quoted on the first night. When there's wisdom, then it, it recognizes the peacefulness at the core of all conditions. Vimutti sarā. And this next line, amatogadasabedama. Merging in the deathless are all things. All things come together in that which never dies. What is that? If there was only this changing stuff, the Buddha said there would be no freedom from birth and death, no freedom from stress. But he said there is an undying, there is a truly peaceful. There is that which is not born, not created, not conditioned. All these things merge, come together in this undying peacefulness, what I called, what the Buddha called the original brightness. Uh, It's just a simile, but to help us get a feeling, the Buddha used similes to get a feeling for this. When we, if we look at the sea, we see the ripples of the sea the waves of the sea. Language can, can identify the big waves, the surfing waves, the dangerous waves. When we go and visit the sea near our hermitage, three hours away from our hermitage in South Africa, it's on the Indian Ocean. First time I, I, I went in, Tanisha was a bit shy, so I said, I'll go. And uh, there's some big waves there, but I thought, never mind. Boy, it crunched me. Even ripped my suit off. I didn't even know it. <laughs> I stood up, but I thought I'd broken my neck. But after that, I'm, you know, wary. There's the big wave. Then there's the little ripplets. Then there's the gentle wave. Notice how perception calls it that. But where do all waves merge? We look more deeply and we'll see all these waves merge. They're all water. They're undivided.
all things merge into death, deathless consciousness fixates on forms. This person, this person, my thoughts, this good experience, the bad experience. But every sound, every form is arising and ceasing back into this depth of awareness. Every sound. Surrounded by silence. We've been so fixated by forms that we've missed the context. So when we start to notice changing, that they can't be grasped, can we notice how each sound returns back into that depth of silence, that aware silence? Every sensation is arising and dissolving back into this ground of inner listening. And especially to do this with our thoughts. We fixate ourselves as this kind of person and that kind of person and fixate others as this kind of person and that kind of person. We split up the world into what's mine and what's yours. But when we actually, as we chanted, gate, gate, paragate, parasangate, bodhisvaha, gone, gone, gone beyond, beyond the beyond, bodhi, awakening, swaha, so be it. One of the great gateways into the deathless is to notice the ending the fading of sound, of thoughts. Ordinary thoughts, thoughts of, oh, I'm having a good day, letting that thought arise and notice it cease back into the silence. Oh, I'm having a terrible day, arise and cease back into the silence. Explore that gap with our thoughts that we imagine we can own and possess conditions, but actually conditions can't be possessed. They're ever-changing. So as we contemplate letting things come and go, focusing on that out-breath, letting things cease, getting the feeling for resting in that ground, my wrestling career was interrupted by an injury and I'd have screws in my shoulder. I finally had to quit. But I had an operation. And after the operation, I was in the hospital and I had this bar and I was sitting up in the bed and I was tired and I wanted to rest, but it hurt. So I was scared. God, is it back there? If I let go? But I kind of trusted. I am sitting in the bed. It should be back there. So I, I let go and, and then the bed catches you. You can't fall below that. It's the ground. We don't realize it, but we're so busy holding ourselves up with our thoughts and wanting it this way and controlling it. And because everything's shifting, there's no certainty in that. When we practice letting go, touching lightly, Letting go, staying in contact, but allowing things to reveal their changing nature. 
we can rest in this ground of the heart, the depth of the heart, that which is, what Ajahn Chah called the original mind, what the Buddha called the original brightness, that which never dies, letting things come and go as they always will, and being interested in that which remains, that which is always such, always here. Each sound takes us home. Each thought takes us home. Each breath reveals the true changing nature. Giving back, letting go and giving back to Dharma, to nature, what is nature, resting with the nature, being the nature, the Dharma. Letting the Buddha have the last words on this topic. A passage Tanisha and I really love. The Buddha is talking to a young student named Kappa. And he asked the Buddha, he said, Sir, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of becoming. Death, decay, overwhelm us. For our sake, sir, tell me where to find an island. Tell me where is there solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. Kappa, said the master, for the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of becoming overwhelmed by death, and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession, non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana. There are people who in mindfulness have realized this and are completely at peace here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, for death. They cannot fall into his power. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.